Welcome to the Life Plus God podcast. My name is Alyssa Robinson. I am your host. And today I have a very special guest, Lily Bird. Lily, I'm so glad you're here. Uh, it is great to be here. This is the first time I ever do this, so we'll see how it goes. Yeah, well, Lily is a congregant here at Truch Memorial United Methodist Church. And today we're asking the question, should I share my story? And the reason that Lily is here with us is because I don't know if I've ever met anyone so on fire to share their story. And one of the things that we acknowledge within the United Methodist Church is that faith sharing is a spiritual practice that not only can enrich our own lives, but can enrich the lives of the people around us, can enrich our relationship with God, our relationship with each other. And so to see someone so excited about faith sharing is just, uh, it gets me excited. It makes me want to share my story more. And so hopefully Lily can inspire you to share your story because I'm going to do a spoiler alert. Uh, Should I share my story? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So Lily, let's just start talking about faith sharing at a high level why are you so eager to share your life stories? Okay, because it feels like literally my soul is on fire. I feel like I am lit from within, and I think it's really starting to show. I went through the depths of depression where I could hardly even speak. I didn't want to get up out of bed. And this was a downward spiral over the course of not the last three years, but maybe the last five to six years where it was it was like a slow drip. So I really didn't see it coming until I started falling into that deeper and deeper depression. And coming out of it, it was literally like... God had ripped the Band-Aid off of my eyes and I could actually see and I was experiencing life from my soul outward and everything changes. It's not a change. It's a transformation. And I just feel compelled to share my story. It's like you just can't hold it in. No, no. And you know what? I've had comments at work where this one uh, coworker that met me a couple of weeks ago, I've only been at my job a little less than two months. And um, he basically told my boss, I just met um, a Lily Bird. And she was like, yeah, and? And he said, she is like a thousand watt light bulb. (laughs) So I took that as a good thing. I'm going to take that and run. Yeah. So uh, This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. (laughs) I'm going to let it shine, shine, shine. And I want other people to join me because I am just chomping at the bit. I I met Gracie. Um, literally right after she had started. Oh yeah, Pastor Gracie. Pastor yeah. Gracie, and I told her, I said, oh, you know, I I, I uh, ran into her and I said, ooh, 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 I've got a story to share. When can we meet? And she was like, well, we can do it, you know, over the phone or, you know, no. I said, I, I, I can feel your energy and I want to feed off of that and I want to start serving. So we had that initial meeting and she showed up with a couple of, you know, with a notebook and she was ready to start taking notes and I kind of blew her away after 45 minutes. She was just like, she was floored because she was probably going to give me a couple of little things to go lick into and say, maybe she'll, maybe she'll volunteer. Maybe she won't. And she kept kind of changing it up. 
switching pages going, hmm, let me rethink that. So I could I could see the wheels turning. So so what are the things that you hope to accomplish in sharing your story? Um, I still believe that there is a tremendous stigma tied towards uh, mental health issues. Um, I think pretty much we all struggle with them, but a lot of us just don't want to admit that we're struggling with our mental health. It's always somebody else has this problem. Because one of the things that Gracie mentioned is, uh, Lily, as many prayer requests as we get, we seldom get them for somebody who wants to pray over somebody who is suffering from depression or some other mental health issue. So it is still, even though you know you have celebrities coming out about their mental health mm-hmm. struggles, as long as it's somebody else, we're going, yeah, that's great. It's wonderful. They're so brave. They're, They're so, so brave, strong. but yeah. I'm not going to own up to it or that my family, somebody in my family is struggling with it because we take it as a very personal, secretive thing. And when we don't share, other people don't know that are suffering from depression. They don't know that there is hope. They don't know that there's somebody else that's basically stuck in the same rut that I was. And mine got really, really bad. I mean, to the point where I was suicidal. Mm. Well, I want to I wanna get into your story and, and your mental health journey, but it, it sounds like you're just looking uh, to help other people feel like they're not alone. Absolutely. To uh, be able to start a journey for themselves of reflection. And if someone is struggling with something similar to what you went through for them to seek help. That there is help out there. And they're not alone. They're not alone and that you can get better. I thought that I had no hope. I thought I had every mental illness in the books. And I have had issues with depression before, but they had never gotten as bad as they did uh, this, especially this last year and a half. It was so bad. I had so much anxiety that triggered deep, deep depression that I didn't even know it was depression. I thought I was schizophrenic. You know, I was bipolar. I had a a brain tumor, something. It wasn't depression because it was so bad. That's that's not what it could be because I didn't recognize it. So I got into a deeper and deeper depression. All right. Well, let's get into your story a little bit. So when you were telling me about your story, the very first thing you said to me, which was just captivating, uh, because you are like a thousand watt light bulb, (laughs) like you're just so energetic and upbeat and people can hear it in your voice. And when you sat down on my couch, you, you said to me, April 26th of this year, I was in a mental health facility. Yes. And then you started your story. Yes. And I was instantly captivated. So can can you walk us through a little bit of what you told me? Okay. I will try. Here goes. Um, April 25th, that evening or that morning, I took a couple of Xanax. And Xanax is something that you take um, to kind of regulate that depression. It kind of takes the edge off. So I'm supposed to take one. I was supposed to take one, you know, for, and it, it's about four hours duration, but it kind of levels you off. If you're getting really anxious, uh, it helps to level you off. And so instead of taking one, I took two and I let my husband know and he totally freaked out because he thought she's trying to kill herself. So he uh, emailed my psychiatrist at the time and he basically said, I cannot help you. You need to seek help. She is. She's tried something, and you need to go take her somewhere. You need to take her to like a Carrollton Springs. So he had a conversation with me, and I agreed. And I said, "Let's wait till tomorrow." I said, "I promise I won't do anything. We'll pack my bag, and then we'll go." I agreed to go because I was basically trying to tell him that I needed help without actually uttering the words "help." 
and I will get to, to that piece later. But I have I had issues with actually asking for help. So um, that next day, the 26th, we drove to Carrollton Springs and, um, you know, you have to fill out paperwork and they ask you some specific questions, very basic. I don't really remember what it was, but they're basically trying to gauge where you're at if you're suicidal. And I was. So, yes. And I, I looked. I was basically, I should be about 125 pounds. I was weighing 109 pounds. Mm-hmm. And you've seen my picture. I looked skeletal would be a good way to put it. And I've actually shown that picture to some really close friends that know me and they didn't recognize me in that picture. Mm-hmm. They said, I looked, I looked worn. I looked old. And they're like, that's not you. That's not you. And it was. So I went into Carrollton Springs, basically barely alive. And I had no, no desire to live. I guess there was something, there was something in me that 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 was seeking help. I didn't know what it was at the time, but there was still this little light because I didn't take myself out. Mm. So for some reason, I kept going and I decided I wanted, I wanted help. I didn't refuse. I went in. Now, the first couple of days that I was there, I didn't want to be there. I mean, it was literally the, the, the one who flew over the cuckoo's nest. I mean, you know, I was seeing the line where you go get your medications. I had been very withdrawn I was in a room with somebody else and I freaked out. I'm like, here, I need my privacy. Here I've been basically isolated at home, hardly seeing anybody, including family. And all of a sudden I find myself in this place, you know, it's, and it's kind of antiseptic looking, you know, and there's, you, you share a room with somebody else. The doors actually have uh, openings because uh, they need to be able to see you. The, the medical staff, and uh, you can't close the door. I tried closing the door, and I got in trouble almost immediately because they're like, nope, you can't close the doors. The showers have pull-away curtains because they don't want to have anything anywhere that you could use to potentially take your life. Yeah, so, so it's scary. It's, it's scary. vulnerable. Yes. It's a new place. New it's- place. You don't know anybody, and you don't want to talk to anybody, and there's no place to hide, and they have structure there. Mm-hmm. So here I'd been basically laying in bed for the, I'm not laying on the couch or, you know, in bed. I didn't really want to do anything because I was so depressed mm-hmm. to having a schedule. And, you know, you have a certain time for breakfast, for lunch, for dinner. They have group activities and processing time, which I didn't really know what that was at the time. When you process through your thoughts and your emotions and basically what's going on inside your head. And that's what they call process time. Well, and, and. Because you had been postponing process time for years at this point. And so you had told me that looking back on it, like this was a really hard time, but being in this facility was an answer to prayer. Absolutely. Can you walk us through what led up to this point? Because you said this was a five-year journey leading up to this. Yes. Uh, What happened is I had, I'm basically an IT professional information technology. Uh, My formal title was a senior applications developer. I used to work for a retail company that's no longer in business, but it's very, very fast paced, very cutthroat. I mean, it's retail. In retail, you have to be 100% up uh, in your applications. Anytime that there's an issue, you have to tend to it. And when I, I was on call, basically, four months out of the year. And I, but that by on call, I mean 24-7, like a doctor, you know, where if you get a call, you have to answer the call. And I would go into work for a regular day. I usually start at work at about seven o'clock in the morning and would end at 3.30 to four and drive. I was in downtown Fort Worth. I had to drive. It was a 45 minute drive because I was basically off traffic hours. 
And But afterwards, if I was on call and we had issues at work, I'd have to get logged back on at home because mm-hmm. I could work from home. So I was working at work, but then also at home on weekends. Sometimes I would get called out of a church service because something went down because literally our application had components running 24-7. And so if, there was no boundary or balance no. between work oh, and no, home. Oh, no, 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 there wasn't. So, you know, if I wanted to have, I mean, I literally remember one time sitting down going, okay, my workday's done, sitting down with a glass of wine going, I need to take the edge off. And literally my phone going off and me looking at it going, oh, geez. So I'd have to get back online, put the wine back and then go back and work. And, you know, and at the time I had a, a daughter in high school. I got, and all of this was happening around 2017. That's when I got married and I also had my cancer scare. I had a lumpectomy on the left breast in 2017. So those were two major events that happened. And so uh, my husband moved in to the house, to my house in um, 2016, and we got married in 2017. Mm -hmm. So there was an adjustment period, you know, a new marriage. So I had a new marriage, a daughter in high school. I mean, she's a great, great girl, you know, but she she was a teenager. So, you know, you go through the the typical issues that you have parenting a teenager, Mm -hmm. a very stressful job. And a new marriage and um, the cancer cancer scare. And uh, in 2019, I also had a really terrible car accident. So uh, I was going about 65 miles an hour and I hit a concrete barrier. Mm -hmm. And that was a God thing that it didn't kill me. You know, the the air, I I, I drive a Honda Accord and it literally totaled the car. I crawled out of the car, but I was okay. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was, I was totally jarred. Um, So that happened as well. And that was in 2019. And uh, I had a boss that was very demanding and I wanted, I was in the same group for 19 years. Mm -hmm. I was just fed up. I wanted to go to a different group and he knew, I knew everything about that application. So he didn't want me to move. So he told me, sorry, you can't. And that about killed me right there. So between all of that going on, knowing I was stuck where I was at and kind of feeling because I had been in the same position and I knew this, st- it was just very repetitive and I didn't feel challenged. So my self-confidence was eroded, mm. you know, to where I felt I'm not very marketable anywhere else. So I was stuck. Yeah. I felt stuck. And when was I going to go interview when I was working all the time? Right. You know, or, or, or they were like, well, yeah, yeah, you, you can, you can take classes. You have to do it on your own time. You know, and it's like, when was, when was my own time? I didn't have my own time. So all of that contributed to the downward spiral. Well, and, and you mentioned, um, learning about processing time, mm-hmm. that that was a new concept to you. So it my guess is boring. you didn't process any of this no. as it was happening. Uh, basically, there was no time to process anything. It was just um, almost like, a, what is it, just go, flying by the seat of your pants. And it was just very reactionary because mm-hmm. that's the way work was. You just reacted. You were putting out fires all the time. Yeah. So it was just kind of fumbling through life, just existing you know, just trying to get through each day and going, okay, I made it through today, you know, because literally my phone going off was a trigger because if it went off at two o'clock, three o'clock in the morning, I knew it was a work call. And I knew I had to wake up in the next, you know, minute or two as I went upstairs, I was waking up because I immediately had to log on and call somebody from our operations team to kind of get some more details on what our issue was. And then I had to resolve it. And we had escalation issues. So we had to respond within 15 minutes or we'd get the second call. And then they would start calling other people because the issues had to be resolved. 
Mm-hmm. So think about trying to use your brain at two o'clock, three o'clock, four o'clock in the morning. I'd rather and then not. Yeah. and then and then drive back into the office once you fix the problem. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, it, it's very so many different layers, and it's very clear to see how this will lead to like mental breakdown and you know physical breakdown and and it did happen you know it happened in 2019 I actually had a panic attack because I finally told my husband I can't he says no you can't you gotta quit so uh he helped me he helped me um put together a resignation letter you know in in terms of what I was going to type up Mm. so I was kind of torn because there were Coworkers that I absolutely loved. I hated my boss, but I loved some of the people that I worked with, some of the business partners that I had. You know, we developed relationships over the course of time. It wasn't just a working relationship. These were people that I would go to and we would talk and have discussions and we would commiserate and kind of go, woe is me, woe is me, because we were all in the same boat. So there was some grief around. There was a grief around just decision. Well, and also, I didn't tell them I was planning on quitting, but just around the stress level that we had at work because the company was struggling, so people were constantly getting laid off. Mm. So it was discussing that, how we were all getting more and more work as we had fewer and fewer people there. So it was stressful for my coworkers as well. So that's how we would commiserate. We kind of hold each other up. We knew each other's pain, basically. Mm. And so it was difficult to say goodbye to them. And I really hadn't told anybody anything. So I was just going, I have to stop. I have to quit this job for my own mental health. But I didn't want to. So that morning that I went to resign, I literally started having a panic attack. And I had no clue what a panic attack was because as much stress as I had dealt with, it had never driven me to a panic attack. And as I got off the elevators, I could feel my, my body tightening, my arms My chest started to hurt. It felt like I was having a heart attack. So once I thought I didn't recognize what was happening to my body, which I can read my own body, um, I was going, my God. So I started hyperventilating. So guess what? That's kind of like you start the ball rolling and it just gets worse. So the more I hyperventilated, the more panicked I got, the more panicked I got, the more I hyperventilated. Then I started getting a tingling sensation in my fingers. So by this time, I've made it to my desk and it's, it's cubicles. You know, if you've ever been in an office environment where you had cubicles. So I got into my cubicle. I tried to start typing my resignation letter and I couldn't do it because my fingers started cramping up. And then I started sobbing because I was panicking. I'm starting to hyperventilate. I'm panicking. There wasn't, and this is about 6.30, 6.45 in the morning. There's nobody there. Well, there was, a, there was a contractor there. And he comes running over because I'm sobbing. And he's like, are you okay? And I went, no. And he says, do I need to call 911? And I said, yes. Well, they had it set up to where the phones, when you dial 911, it actually reaches somebody there. They have kind of like a almost like a a work-related sort of a SWAT team. So some guy came up, they came up and they started talking to me and I was freaked out. They're like, you need to calm down because I was speaking very quickly and very agitated and they were trying to calm me down. And I was like, I need to see a professional. I don't know what's wrong with me. I need somebody to tell me what's wrong with me. So I literally had them bring an ambulance and I was taken to the closest hospital there in downtown Fort Worth for an evaluation. And it pretty much was... um, they just gave me some fluids. They checked everything, my heart. Everything was fine. And it was basically a panic attack. Mm. So that was my first experience with a panic attack ever. As much stress as I had had in that, I was at that, I was at that place for 19 years. And at 16 years, no, 
19 years. That was the first panic attack I had ever had. Mm. So this happened in 2019. 2019. What took us from 2019 to 2022? I basically did not, could not go back. At that point, my brain was messed up. Something was wrong with the chemical balance in my head. I am a very analytical, cognitive thinking person, but I'm also very emotional. And what I found out from therapy and from the psychiatrist is that things kind of got wonky. Mm. And my emotional side kind of took over the cognitive. And so when you're driving with a purely emotional brain and the cognitive is literally in the backseat, stuff comes out, thoughts are totally messed up. So at that point, once I had the panic attack, um, I started, you know, uh, I didn't want to take pills. So I was fighting the whole, let's get you some pills. Let's go see somebody. I didn't want to go see anybody. So my husband kind of snuck me into uh, the therapist that I saw for, not the therapist, the psychiatrist that I saw for three years. And um, he, he started basically experimenting on me. You know, they, they, they give you different medications and they were they would either bring me down or take me up to. So it was literally, I felt like I was being pulled in all directions. And, and that period was really ugly because I would act out this, these, these medications that he was trying on me were not working. Mm -hmm. And then he put me on, I think lithium. And I was like, golly, I was just trying to just, just stop. Uh, so I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Everything's fine. Well, it wasn't. So he kind of kept experimenting for a couple of years and nothing was working. And so I started get, that's when I started kind of slipping into further depression because this time I had been working my entire adult life. I tried to go back to work. What I did was I took a, a FMLA. Mm -hmm. I took leave. Uh, after I had the panic attack, I did not go back. And five weeks later, I went back. And I was mess, messed up. So I couldn't do an analytical job the way I was thinking. It, I was very emotionally driven, so I couldn't do my job. So after literally a few weeks, I decided to uh, resign because I was like, I can't do my job. So that really depressed me because, you know, I kind of identified myself through my work. Yeah. And so I couldn't do my job anymore. So that really started the, the super deep spiral downward because I never went back to work until just recently. So through all of this time, there is just like the rapid fire of tough events happening in your life, all of these layers. Then in 2019, basically your body tells you you're done. Yes, like, pretty much. This is, you got to fix this. My body, body did it for me. My body did it for me. But your brain didn't catch up to your body. No, and no, so my, you were fighting it, right? Absolutely. So it was this mental, emotional struggle inside my head. Mm -hmm. And it literally, especially the last year. So it was, it was, so it was a kind of a slow burn into deeper and deeper depression. But the last year and a half was really like the depths of depression where, you know, inside my head was basically a living hell. Yeah. You know. So, so where does spirituality come into play in all of this? What was your relationship with God like when you were going through all of this? Uh, to be honest, it was not good. Now, I would say, God, please forgive me. I don't know what's wrong with me, but I feel like a horrible person. And I've, I basically felt like I didn't deserve God's love. Well, why did you feel like a horrible person? Because I was messed up. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing that is hard to, for me to, um, to get people to understand is I wasn't thinking right. I thought I was, but my thoughts, my thoughts were mine, but they were messed up because of the emotional driver. Not the cognitive driver, the emotional driver. When you take away the cognitive and you just have a majority of emotional, 
it's messed up. Mm -hmm. So even though I thought I was thinking straight, I really wasn't. And I wasn't going to get righted until I got the proper medications to stabilize those. Something chemically got wrong in my head. And so when you ask these questions, I wasn't in the right frame of mind. It's hard to explain. It's yeah. very difficult to explain because as much as I hate taking medications, I know for a fact that without those medications, I would not have been righted. And one of the things that, and I can't remember what the medications were, but the when you read the label, it said for racing thoughts. Mm -hmm. And I thought, what the heck is a racing thought? But think about it this way. Think about your, your um, cognitive thoughts. Think about your emotional thoughts. And you know how sometimes there's, a, there's an emotion that's tied to, um, to a thought, right? They go together. Well, think about spinning those in a tornado inside your head. Mm -hmm. That's literally the racing thoughts. It's memories, thoughts, feelings, everything, but it's all garbled up in this tornado and it is a hot mess inside your head and you cannot make sense of anything. And that's why I could never focus for more than 10 minutes maybe because everything was garbled up. I couldn't, I couldn't take a shower. It was like, oh my gosh, it takes so long. I got to do the shampoo. I got to do the scrubbing. It I got overwhelming. It was overwhelming. And I do mean everything overwhelm me. Eating overwhelm me. I have to go to the bathroom afterwards. Oh my gosh, that's overwhelming. Do we have enough toilet paper? That's overwhelming. I don't want to have to go to the store. I don't want to have to eat because then I may have to go get something and I'm going to have to get in the car. Oh my gosh, I can't drive. I can't focus. How am I going to drive? So little by little, my world shrank and shrank and shrank until I was literally confined to my house. I got to the point where I told my husband, I can't drive anymore. I'm afraid to drive. And part of, part of me wanted to just go ram into a post somewhere. Mm. Those were the kinds of thoughts that I had. But again, they were messed up thoughts. Yeah. Well, and so you were crying out to God, but I you was. still felt distant from God, yes. like you didn't deserve God's grace or God's presence. And yet you were still seeking this relationship. And so uh, what? where do we go next with that spiritual piece? Okay. And again, it wasn't just God. It was my entire family. My daughter means so much to me. Guess what? Because my husband was living there with me. He was the one that had to put up with all of this and was seeing everything. But my daughter had moved out uh, in 2020. So I spent the last two years just with my husband and I at the house. Uh, and my biggest issue was with my daughter. I felt so guilty because I would not, I didn't want to talk to her. I didn't want to talk to my sisters. I didn't want to talk to my mom. I used to talk to my mom every single weekend without fault. So as soon as, and they, I asked my youngest sister, I said, when did you see, when I was better, I said, when did you see, or when did you notice that something wasn't right with me? And you know what she said? About the time I had the cancer scare. And I said, well, no, no, not the cancer. I said, just when I wasn't acting like my normal self. And she said, about the same. So my family knew something wasn't right back in 2017 because we have, we're so emotionally, deeply connected. We know each other. We know our patterns, our habits, the tone of our voice. So the tone of my voice started changing, the things I said, the, the, I started to isolate, talk less and less and less until I was not answering phone calls. So my parents, my mom was desperate for me to return calls. My sisters were desperate. My sister would come by periodically, but she had to basically force herself here over mm -hmm. because I didn't want visitors. I didn't want to talk to my daughter because I was ashamed. I felt embarrassed. I also felt I don't want to put this on her. She's studying. She has, she has her own issues. She suffers from a little bit of general anxiety. I thought, that's the last thing I want for her is to have to deal with me. So that's how I, um, I made it make sense for me. Mm. 
Mm. You know, in terms of why I pulled away from God and from my entire family, except for my husband who was there. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, so basically what the Holy Spirit was showing me is, Lily, it's almost like it's a wonderful life. This is what your life is like with separation from God and separation from family. It's my living hell. So the last year and a half was basically the Holy Spirit showing me, Lily, for you, this is hell. Mm -hmm. And I never want to experience that again. So at Carrollton Springs, um, after about the third day that I was there, I was in treatment for seven days. After about the third day was when I started to see changes. You know, I, I showed you the little therapy cat. I don't know if that was maybe day four or so where I could actually focus enough that I did one of these little projects where you put these little beads on a little thing and it made a cat. And then they, they iron it. Of course, they didn't let us touch irons, you know, because we weren't allowed to do that. But we went with our little thing and then they pressed it. And I was so proud that I kept my therapy cat because it took me about 20 minutes to put together. And I hadn't been able to focus for 20 minutes in years. Mm -hmm. So to me, that was like, Oh my gosh, this is a sign that I'm getting better. Yeah. You know. Well, and although you were pulling away from family, family never gave up on you. Oh, they were no. praying for you and and that's one of the things that you told me that was just such a beautiful part of this story is that Carrollton Springs was an answer to prayer. Of course, you had been crying out to God. So it was an answer to your prayer, probably not in the way that you expected. <laughs> no. But your family had also been praying for okay. you. Okay. Uh, th and this is what my family did is about a month before I, you know, took the pills and went to Carrollton Springs, about a month before my sister, I had had a conversation with my youngest sister. And uh, I basically was saying, you know, over the phone, I said, I can't do this anymore. I can't take this pain anymore. I, 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 I don't belong here. I can't figure anything out. I'm useless. It's, it's hopeless. I can't take this pain anymore. And she took that to mean, this is really, really bad. You know, she's basically, she was thinking it. I know she's suicidal. And she had seen me. I was looking worse and worse every time she did see me. So um, she had a conversation with my parents who live in El Paso. And she also had a conversation with my, uh, my middle sister. So I'm the oldest. So it was my youngest sister, my middle sister, and my mom and dad. And she said, I'm going to put this together. And I'm going to conference everybody in every single Sunday. And we need to pray out loud for Lily because this is really bad. And you know, we've been trying to figure out what's wrong with her for years, and we haven't been able to figure out, but it's really bad now, so we need to pray out loud. And so they would pray every single Sunday without, without fail, and my mom and dad are Catholic, so they basically got their beads, and I mean, they were wearing down those rosary beads. Mm -hmm. They were pay and they pray for everybody, but they were specifically praying for me together. And when they found out that I had gone to Carrollton Springs, the first thing they all did was oh my God, we had no idea how quickly this was going to happen, that their prayers were answered. And it wasn't them just praying. It's like, I have so much extended family. I have a cousin who lives in Ciudad Juarez, who is a pastor. No, he's a priest because it's Catholic church. He's a priest. They had him praying. I mean, I don't know how many people were praying. My ex-mother-in-law is also big into the church. So she had her whole army of friends and, uh, and, and people that she really cared, they're very involved with the church. They had, so I have no idea how many people were praying for me, but it was an army of prayer people. So wow. it was, it was, and, 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 you know, and I started feeling the changes and the better I got, the harder I fought. Well, and I, I was going to ask, so when, uh, because I think that looking back on it, it, it's a clear to see 
where God is at work in this story and, and the ways that when you're crying out to God, God is saying, I'm still here. I'm here. I'm here throughout all of this with your family, with people reaching out to you, with the support coming your way, even with the psychiatrist trying out these medications. So many people put in your path yes. to try and help you. When did you start to feel God's restoration, that that realization happened of, oh, God is with me? Okay. Well, let me let me go backwards a little bit, because one of the things I do want to point out is I actually uttered these words, and now I think, why in the world did I say that? But I actually, what I would do is when my husband would go off to the gym is when I had my, my fits. I would literally, there was a lot of rage in me because I was mad at myself. I was mad at the world. You know, it's like, I just want to I want to go away. I don't want to experience this anymore. I just want to be done with this life because it sucks. And uh, what I did was I actually cried out and I was looking up, God, why have you forsaken me? Mm -hmm. Here I've got all these people praying for me and I'm saying, God, why have you forsaken me? And I'm like, now I go, seriously, Lily, is that what you were really thinking? You were really messed up, to put it nicely. But also I want to acknowledge it's okay to have felt that way. Like, I think that we've all felt that way at certain points. Of, and maybe the question is different. Maybe it's, why are you doing this to me? Why did you let this happen? Mm-hmm. Whatever the question is, when we cry out in our most desperate moments, it's when we're at our most vulnerable, our most honest, our raw, mm-hmm. raw. raw moment. And I think that um, it's moments like that that, we reveal our heart to Absolutely. God. I mean, Jesus did it. <laughs> yeah. And you know what, though? That's what I, that's what I have to, you know, it's in scripture. I was the most broken I have ever been in mm-hmm. my life. I mean, there was no farther down to go. Mm-hmm. I was basically 109 pounds, skeletal, ready to die. How much further could I sink? Not a whole heck of a lot more. Mm-hmm. So I was at my worst. And then the prayers and God and all of the people that were in my life at that point in time came together. And then through therapy, through my awesome, between the psychiatrist doing the medications and the therapist. So I needed a combination of medication from the psychiatrist and therapy. The therapist I got, I had, I'm going to say her name, Naomi at Carrollton Springs. I told her uh, as I was getting better, I had tears welling up in my eyes and I said, thank you. Thank you to you and the entire staff. You saved my life. It was that impactful. And um, she had, she, she had her, her eyes welled up. And therapists know when you're throwing a bunch of BS at them. And she felt my honesty. And through some of the, um, um, uh, assi- not really assignments, but they give you these pieces of paper that have questions to fill out. So they gauge kind of where, where you are, whether you're a spiritual person or not, like what's important to you. And I said, you know, my faith is very important. My family is very important. So based on those questionnaires that I was filling out, she knew which, which kind of how to guide the direction to try, as I was doing my processing, to try to figure out mm-hmm. how do I help this woman? I mean, that's her job. How? She is depressed, and I have to figure out why. Yeah. And I have to do it in a short time frame. I was there for two weeks because I was paying 100% out of pocket. I wasn't working no insurance. So she knew she want, she had to get as much as she could out of me because she knew I was paying out of pocket. And she was very, very, very conscious of that and, and, and just tried to get as much as she could. But when I thanked her, she said, you know what, Lily, I just guided. You did all the work. Mm-hmm. And I was like, wow. 
But a lot of times what I did was I, I threw myself under the bus repeatedly with guilt over my daughter. Over I, I, was, I felt guilty over not spending more time with my daughter. And she said, Lily, you had a very stressful job. And I said, yes, but I also, I also went out dancing with friends and I spent too much money. You know, a couple, I went through a period where I spent too much. Lily, show yourself some grace mm. is what she, but she said that because again, of what I had filled out in my questionnaire saying that. Faith was very important. So she said, show yourself some grace. You were just trying to have a little fun in that crazy life of yours. Yeah. So, so it feels to me that that, that restoration was happening in that oh, two yes. weeks. Naomi was a big part of that. Your family's prayers were a huge part of that. You saying yes to the experience yes. was a huge part of that and saying, yes, I'm, I'm going to do this. I'm going. And, and God just opened up so many opportunities for restoration. When did that restoration start to become spiritual transformation? Because you're not the same person you were before. Oh, no, 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 no. And I thought when I went through my first divorce that I was transformed, I got more involved in the church, but then I kind of started slipping back up, you know, into my old habits because, again, what work was doing, you know, it kind of sucked me back into that hole. Um, so the transformation really started about more towards the end of May. You know, I had, I had finished my, uh, it, I, I had seven days in treatment and then 10 working days um, outpatient. So after I finished my outpatient, it was about mid-May. And then uh, at that point, you know, I continued to take the medications that I had. And all I was doing was getting better. Because again, at this point, I am fighting. I am fighting because I know it's all starting to come back. And little by little, I got better. So what I started doing was, you know, my house hadn't been tended to in three years. Remember I told you I did a lot of couch surfing? Mm -hmm. A lot of TV watching, just kind of laying around, not well, wanting and it's to do probably anything. Overwhelming to clean up after yourself. Overwhelming to throw something in the trash. Like all of these yes. these little things just add up over time. And then it gets worse. You know, yeah. the bigger the mess, the more overwhelmed you are. So I literally had been because it got this bad to where I really couldn't focus. I mean, every little task was like a major, major, mm. major thing. So even I had a piece of trash. I remember doing this. I had a piece of paper. And I was like, the garbage can is way over there. I don't want to have to go outside and throw the garbage out. So I'll just grab this piece of paper, wad it up, open up my vanity or my cabinet underneath my vanity, threw it in there, wad it up. I don't have to deal with it. There's a piece of, there's a piece of trash in there. I'll have to deal with it later. It was that bad. Totally nonsensical, but again, very emotionally driven, but very garbled up. So I kind of want to uh, step outside of your story for a moment, because this is just it. It is such an incredible story that you have. And like, I mean, anyone who's been listening to it now, now you you hear what I was telling you of she is on fire. Yes, ma'am. girl is on fire. Um, just wanting to, to share everything. And I'd like to hear because um, one of the things you talked about is the the stigma of yes. mental illness and how it took you a really long time to admit were there other people who shared their stories with you that helped you feel like you weren't so alone in this time well actually while i was at carrollton springs because the therapy there is not individual therapy it's group therapy so there are people there with issues as well because it's all mental health mm. you know and and they they put you in they have like four or five different wings depending on how they classify you and that happens when you when you fill in the intake paperwork 
you know, they kind of gauge where you're at, what your mental state is, and they put you with similar cases, but it's not identical. So not everybody there had depression. I would lay awake at night, uh, like at two o'clock, three o'clock in the morning, and I felt the power of the Holy Spirit in me, kind of pushing me to start doing things. It's like, I have a story to tell. I need to tell it. And that's why I literally ran to Gracie to say, I need to volunteer. I need to do things. I need to help people. And so the first thing I thought of was I need to speak to my mental health and the journey that I had and how empowering this was and transformational and how how much closer I feel to God and how I want my my soul to shine. And I want to use words that express that, you know, not just not just my words, but how I'm I have a body that I use, you know, you, should, you see, you're looking at my hands, right? I am very, very, um, I don't know, I speak with my hands as much as my voice and my face. And, you know, my, my entire being is, is telling the story, not just my voice. And I've got a very animated voice. I can speak very, very fast, slow, high, low. I'm not monotone by any means. Um, <laughs> That and uh, just the excitement that I feel to share this story. And I'm fluent in Spanish, so I want to help the Hispanic community here. So I want to do things there. Uh, so it, it's just like I have got about a million ideas if you're willing to listen. <laughs> so so if you were to sum it up and let's go old school fable, what would you say is the moral to your story? The moral? Yeah. The moral is... Oh my God, uh, open up your soul. Let the Spirit of God in and discover what your spiritual gifts are because we all have them. And I just figured mine out and I am so excited to use it in service to God. And isn't that what we're supposed to do? Yeah. Well, okay. So someone's listening. They heard your amazing story and they're inspired. They're thinking, well, you know, I have a story, but maybe they're a little bit nervous about sharing their story. What encouragement would you give them? Because maybe not everybody's as outgoing and outspoken and so quick to jump in and say, I have a story. What do you say to someone who's like, should I share? Oh, what I say is absolutely, because we all have a story to share. We are all broken in this world, and we all have something that isn't working in our lives. And when we share, other people feel they're not alone. And that is extremely important that we are not alone, that other people have the same kind of pain that I had, that somebody else has. You know, because other people suffer from different things. There's, there, I, there's somebody I know that's a neighbor that's going through a painful divorce right now. Mm-hmm. So if you have a story to tell about divorce, which I also have that story. Same here. <laughs> <laughs> but again, that's helpful because, again, we go through things that we think, I'm going through this alone. I'm the only one that can deal with this. And that's not true. <laughs> well, I love that that you use your story in service to others and that you do have this excitement. And I know that you told me you were like, hey, this is just one of many, yes. one of many stories uh, about relationship and connection with God and, and how you've seen God at work through your life. But thank you for, for taking a moment out just to share this one with us and your excitement. And um, now... It makes me want to go out and share my story, All right. which I've done a few times. Maybe our listeners are tired of hearing my story <laughs> at this point. They're like, no, bring in more people like Lily. <laughs> hey, I have plenty of stories to share. If there's anybody willing to listen, I am willing to tell them. And I've got a few. 
Well, thank you so much, Lily. And I, I want to encourage people listening. If you've been thinking about sharing your story or you just want to talk to somebody about um, what your story could possibly be, I want to encourage you to go to tmumc.org slash my story. Um, there you can get some resources on how to share. Um, and you can also, we have a form that you can submit your story and get the process going and and. I, I got some news for you. I'm the person on the other end of that form. So if you're filling that out, you're you're coming directly to Alyssa Robinson, and I'd be happy to have a conversation with you anytime because um, faith sharing is one of the spiritual practices I love most. That's why I do this podcast. That's why I, you know, write for our blog and, and all the things is I think faith sharing is just... Um, it's one of my favorite things. And so. you know what? This actually isn't very painful. I have never, ever in my life done a <laughs> podcast, and this this was a piece of cake. This yeah. wasn't hard at all. Like, oh, you know, I'm so glad to hear that. Um, Lily, thank you so much, and I hope to have you on again. You're very welcome. Uh, I look forward to it. The Life Plus God podcast is hosted, written, and produced by me, Alyssa Robinson, and sponsored by Treach Memorial United Methodist Church in Flower Mound, Texas. If you live in the Flower Mound area, I invite you to stop by and see if Treach could be your new church family. You can learn more about all of our programs and events at tmumc.org, and I hope to catch you next week for our next episode of the Life Plus God podcast.